Welcome to Just Curious Media. This is Let's Talk Movies, and I'm Jason Connell. On the show today, a very special guest I interviewed recently, Bud S. Smith. So I'm talking about this interview to set it up, but I did meet with Bud December 2020. We had a wonderful conversation. And if you don't know the name, Bud is an editor extraordinaire, two-time Oscar-nominated editor. He worked on films like The Exorcist, The Karate Kid, To Live and Die in L.A., Flashdance, and many, many more. He was nominated for The Exorcist and Flashdance. Didn't win. However, he did win a BAFTA award for Best Editing Flashdance. So the reason I reached out to Bud was this. I was working on To Live and Die in L.A., for this particular show, our third episode, and I was doing cast and crew research and came across his name, realized he lived or was born in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And that was it. I was like, at some point in time, I've got to talk to Bud. So that time came late 2020, and I kind of held the interview until we finished the first 10 episodes of Let's Talk Movies. So we did that, and I've released a couple of interviews the last two weeks, Dabney Coleman, John Kapolis. Now, those were much more archived interviews, but this was more recent, but a wonderful conversation. We talk about Bud's career. We really get into Live and Die in LA because not only was he an editor, he was second unit director and supervising film editor, and a co-producer, I should say. Sorry. So he has lots to say about the movie, the chase scenes, and all these things that make the movie so great. And also, beyond working with Friedkin on To Live and Die in L.A. and The Exorcist, he worked with Friedkin on like five, six other movies. We kind of quickly brush over those, but they had this relationship that went way back, which is incredible. So if that wasn't enough, another reason I wanted to speak with Bud as well as share this interview with everyone else is that he was the editor on The Karate Kid. Come on. I mean, we do a show called Let's Talk Cobra Kai. My initial thought was like, oh, I'll just take that little bit and put it over there and put it on Let's Talk Cobra Kai. Everything we talk about, the Karate Kid, of course, the great John G. Avildsen film. Well, he was associate producer on that, editor. and But I didn't want to do that. The more I got into the interview, I realized it should just be intact. And so we're going to release it here, the entire thing. And then we go over just a few other movies that he worked on, including his directing debut. He also worked with Sam Raimi on Darkman, helped save that movie, he says. Okay, he was editor and supervising editor on that. But on a bigger note and a lot more personal level, Bud shared with me that he had overcome throat cancer a few years ago. And in doing so, he lost like half of his tongue and they had to replace his jaw. So his voice is different. I mean, I only know it this way, but you know, he tells me it's just harder for him to speak. And then here, it's obviously very hard for him to eat. It's like a soup diet or smoothies. But you know, when I got on the phone with him, you can definitely hear him and you can understand him. You just have to kind of focus. But I was a little nervous at first, like, wow, this is a long interview. But you know what? The more we edited and I went through this, it's great. And I hope that um, it resonates with everybody out here, everything that he's done for us in the world of film, but just what he overcame on a personal level. So uh, for all you YouTube livers, unfortunately, you're going to have to download the podcast version to hear the interview with Bud S. Smith. There was no way to kind of insert it here, but I will tell you this, it is well worth your time. So please enjoy my conversation with Bud S. Smith. But I was really fascinated like cuz I having grown up in Tulsa as well and moved to Los Angeles. <laughs> it's amazing. I couldn't believe when I looked up your name I'm like, "Wait, he's also from Tulsa?" Oh, no, I was born in Tulsa and I uh, my parents moved to California okay. when I was 5 years old. Oh, okay. So, so you're more of a Californian. So I, I, <laughs> I hitched a ride with him. Yeah, you did. Yeah, you did. <laughs> so you moved to California when you were five. And yes. From five years old until when you started your career, were you just always fascinated by movie making, filmmaking, or like what led you towards it? I was uh, kind of a race monkey. I wanted to be a, a race car driver. Oh. And so when I was young, I was in auto garages, working on cars, and I was doing that until I got a, a job at David L. Walter, and I went into documentaries, and I did that with David L. Walter for 10 years. 
And then I moved to New York and worked with Billy Friedson for 20 years. So I've had a pretty strange working relationship. You so, did indeed. Anyway, I'm sorry to jump ahead like that, but <laughs> that's okay. Go ahead and ask me whatever questions you want. Well, I didn't know about the David Walper. I actually read a biography of his twice. I enjoyed it so much. He did a bunch of documentaries. Didn't he wind up producing the Olympics in Los Angeles at one point in time? Well, I didn't produce. I was only an editor. Right. You know, I was I was around the trenches. Of course. So to speak. So and then you jumped into Friedkin, which is obviously a talking point because I've been a huge fan of William Friedkin's Forever, and you worked on several of his movies. I mean, going back to The Exorcist, which you also nominated for an Oscar for film editing. Yeah, but I was with Billy Friedkin uh, when I was doing documentaries. He came from Chicago as a young documentarian and I was an editor at David O. Walter, and we hit it off pretty good, and uh, he went off to do his his uh, feature situation, which came to England, and he did a feature there, another feature back in New York, and then I finally, I was doing a film with Robert Downey Sr., and I did five years with him, and I kept running into Friedkin at the laboratory when we would run dailies. Wow. And so we just kind of bumped into each other. And a few years later, he called me and wanted me to come and work with him on The Exorcist. And they sent me a script. And I was on a plane flying to New York reading the script. And I said, he can't do that. He can't do this. Well, he did. He did all that. So anyway, I uh, kind of burrowed in New York, and we worked on on The Exorcist. And uh, I finally went back to Los Angeles, and he came too. And we went to Tideo to do our final sound mix. And we were there for like three months doing the sound mix. Normally it takes a week. But Billy was so intense. Anyway, I started to jump ahead like that. No apologies needed. So did you know in the middle of editing The Exorcist just how special the film was or was going to be? Not really, no. You know, just when you, you... you see the little girl going through her changes, that's when the film really kicked in, and that's when I realized this was something more than just a part of a uh, film. Right. So it was uh, pretty devastating. Absolutely. And, uh, and it still holds up today. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I kind of outgrew it, so... <laughs> I bet. Uh, You're very close to it, indeed. And obviously, you guys built a good working relationship to work on that many projects together. We hit it off really good. And, uh, I guess that, that took us into the next 20 years. Absolutely. So after The Exorcist and Sorcerer and The Brinks Job, Cruising, Deal of the Century, it leads me to a movie that I'd like to discuss with you, which is To Live and Die in L.A. Yeah. And on that movie, you were credited as second unit director, supervising film editor, and co-producer. And I just covered this movie on my Let's Talk Movies podcast. I've always loved this film. And you had a big role in it, many roles. And so maybe you could just kind of take me behind the scenes a little bit about this production. All right. Well, I can only tell you what, uh, you know, I was working with Billy and he came up with this thing, To Live and Die in L.A. I think he wrote it also. Oh, you know, Pepevich wrote it, and I think they both kind of got in bed with it, yeah. uh, so to speak. And uh, we did a script, and we were probably a year out of shooting it, and we did scouting locations, which I 
I was a good driver, because I used to race cars. And uh, so I would drive Billy every place we went to scout locations, which was down in the river bottom in L.A. Yeah. And uh, I would go up the wall, up the cement sides, and, <laughs> you know, just kind of roofing around. And he liked that, so... We kind of put that in the movie, too. They use that same gimmick or the same terrain in the movie Grease. <laughs> That's right. After that. Yeah. After. I, I don't know when it was released. Oh, released. I think Grease was actually sooner. Sooner? Okay. Well, they, they didn't do what we did. No, no. You guys took it to a whole <laughs> other level. You showed a side of <laughs> yeah. Los Angeles that I didn't know existed. And yeah, that chase scene, I've got to say that I've read so much of behind the scenes, but I'm just reading you were there. But was it true that yeah. that was put off until the end just in case someone got injured? The chase scene? No, no, we did that pretty much at the end because we were trying to get location. Okay. And you could only shoot that on a weekend. So we would shoot it Saturday and Sunday and then wrap for the week and do something else, they would come back and try to pick up where we left off. And uh, that's when Billy has more ideas of what to do. Okay. And that was uh, the chase down in the river bottom where the people were coming from every direction. <laughs> yes. And we're down the river bottom going as fast as we could and went across this water thing and up the, to get out of the river bottom and went down. And then we made a, a hard cut to get us down to San Pedro. And this was from downtown LA to downtown San Pedro. And you couldn't tell the difference. It was just a good, good transition. Absolutely. I noticed that there's a lot of scenes that are in Long Beach in that movie. Yeah, yeah. Well, not a lot, but some. Some, yeah. So a second unit director, what were you shooting? What was your responsibilities? I had a second unit uh, camera crew, which meant I could go off and shoot whatever I wanted. But I would shoot the car chases, and you know I would be shooting along with Billy Friedkin. He would be shooting the actors, and I'd be shooting the stuntmen. And the chase for the car for the shoot assignment. There's a car chase taking us down to the river bottom with a train. And so this car had to outrun the train. And that's when we had the stunt guys doing what they do, which was outrun the train, going over the tracks, down the river bottom, and away they went. And the uh, next thing you know, they're in San Pedro. <laughs> and it's just anything. Yes. I don't know if you can tell, but that's what that's all about. Oh, it's great. And earlier you had mentioned documentaries. And just to kind of catch you up on myself, I actually produced and directed like 10 award-winning documentaries. I cut my teeth on documentaries, so I have a lot of respect for them. And with documentaries, you find the story in the editing a lot of times, yeah. most of the time. So I think it made you probably a more astute editor for sure. Obviously, and your credits yeah. speak yeah. for themselves. And not to put me in your class by any means, you worked on some of the greatest movies of all time. Well, you know, the thing is, when I was younger, I aspired to be a, a racing driver, a Grand Prix, like Riverside and the Renaissance and all those places. And I raced a, a Lotus for, for a few years, and that's when I, I retired that and got into filmmaking. I had already been in filmmaking, but part racing and part filmmaking. And so I finally decided I better just make a living, and that's when I decided I better just stick to filmmaking. Yeah. Well, those scenes from To Live and Die in L.A. had to really be exciting for you because you were able to tap into your love for car racing. And it obviously led to one of the greatest car chase scenes in American film history. 
it's definitely a crowning achievement for that movie. I've, I've brought it up for years because a movie needs like that scene that you can quickly just tell someone about like, oh, you got to see Till the Night in LA. This is a great car chasing. It's more than that. The movie's much more than that. And about yeah. the movie, it's one of the first times that I can recall that has that big pivotal change late in the movie where you lose your lead actor and it discontinues on. I mean, that's a device that is not very common. And I know that Friedkin had to shoot this crazy alt ending. And maybe just talk a little about that, about just how dramatic <laughs> it was to make a movie lose your lead and also how William Friedkin had to fight for that right. Well, we shot a different ending only because the studio and the producers wanted an ending for the guys who still alive. So we had to figure out how to do that. So we just went out off and the shot ending with two guys that looked like they're in Alaska. Yeah. And anyway, we, we shot that on a stage in L.A. And exteriors was Alaska, interiors was L.A. And we shot this ending, and Billy hated it. So we screened it for the producers, and I think they hated it too. So we didn't use it. It's terrible. No offense. I saw it on YouTube, and I'm like, no, the movie works the way it is. Yeah. What did you think of that kind of pivot in the movie at that point in time, to lose chance in that fashion, in that very grotesque fashion? You can get away with not having chance die, you know, by having a different ending. But we didn't like that. Yeah. You know, we wanted a chance to get shot in the face with a shotgun. And we did, and that's the way we the film went out. I mean, Bud, the film is called To Live and Die in L.A. It's very fitting. <laughs> that's right. That's exactly what it's called. Yeah, that's great. And then, obviously, you had some great stars in that movie. You had a young William Defoe. You had John Turturro. And I like that he also cast these two relatively unknown, so you just weren't caught up in their mystique as a star. And they later became bigger names. I mean, you had William Peterson, who went on to have some success, of course. But I love that he cast these relatively unknowns. They had been together acting in Chicago, and he found them there. And it was really smart. So he made some smart decisions along the way. And yeah. there was also Valentin de Vargas was in the film, and he had a small role in To Live and Die in L.A. He was also great. Do you know where Valentin was born by chance? No, no. Tulsa, Oklahoma. <laughs> True story. Uh, maybe I should have oh, known that fast then. Wait a second. I stand corrected. I had it flipped. He was born in Albuquerque. He passed away in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Ah, and should live and die in Tulsa, Oklahoma. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, sorry. I had that flipped. I remember looking this up when I was researching the film, and I'm like, wait, another Tulsa Italian? But he actually passed away in Tulsa. But yeah. yeah. And there was other great characters in the movie, by the way. There was great performances by Steve James, who passed away too soon. Dean Stockwell was fantastic in the movie as well. Yeah, yeah. Some yeah. really, really wonderful actors. But I just think it's a movie that holds up over time. It was so fun to cover on our podcast. And uh, even the music, even to get a song by Wang Chung, who was huge at the time. Yeah. Well, Billy, Billy had heard Wang Chung in, in England and decided he wanted them to score the film. So he sent them a script and said, write a score for this film. And they did. And what Billy was trying to do is have him be spontaneous. Right. So he brought him to L.A. and uh, put him up and took him over to Tyrell for missing the film. And they spent a month with us and they wrote this music for the film. And I cut it in wherever they wanted it. Anyway, Billy liked it, and I liked it, and they liked it, so it stayed in. The music is wonderful. It helps just the pacing throughout the whole film. But I did read that Freakin said, whatever you do, don't make a song called To Live and Die in L.A. And, of course, they made that track to live and die in LA. <laughs> That's right. 
And he likes it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He kept <laughs> it in there. So yeah, it's a great. It, it's so fitting. And I got to say something else with that movie that you just don't see. It showed you how to make counterfeit bills. Really, essentially, it's like a lesson on how to do it. I shot all that. That was second unit. Is printing the money. It was one of those things that we we needed it in the film, and Billy didn't have time to stop and shoot that. Cause yeah. It's all inserts. So I went ahead and shot it. Like I knew where he would want to put stuff in, like Willem Dafoe. Yep. And so I would just shoot it, and then we were hey, I knew how to put that stuff together. And we had it out in uh, Palmdale in a warehouse. It was pretty bizarre because you used to see how you made money. And we shot it so you could duplicate it if you wanted to. <laughs> but you have to do it on both sides. Right. Well, how did you know how to do it? Did you have these people on set that showed you how to do it? I was lucky enough to have done some research and I found two counterfeiters okay. that had been arrested. We had we had a guy on our payroll that was a detective in LA and he knew about counterfeiters. Wow. So we brought these counterfeiters in and I went to where they were working and they had this training machine. And I printed up all this money in, you know, shooting inserts. And then Billy went back and put the Willem Dafoe shots in. And it just married together. It was flawless, I think. Oh, it looks great. When you see Masters played by William Dafoe, and he's cutting the bills and he's doing all the behind the scenes how to do it, all the way up to putting it in a dryer with poker chips. The whole bit. Yeah. And I even read that some fake bills got into circulation. Was there some truth to that? Yeah, yeah, there was some truth to that. It had to do with the prop boy. He was the one that had all of the counterfeit money. And I said his kids got into getting a couple of $20 bills and went to a, a liquor store and bought something and Oh. Found out to be counterfeit. And they tracked it all back to us. <laughs> and we could have been arrested for counterfeiting. Yeah. But we had a we had an agent on the film that kinda of was our technical advisor. Yeah. And he had to step in and stop him from coming in and arresting us. Did you get a sense of those bills when you actually held it in your hands and felt it? Does it feel like a real bill? Does it look very passable to you? I've never even seen a counterfeit bill, as far as I know, anyway. What's that, the bills? Yeah, the bills themselves. If, did you hold them and feel them? And if you didn't know any better, would you recognize them as phonies? No, I wouldn't. Yeah. In the movie, they looked amazing. Of course, I'm seeing a movie, but it's cool to hear up close and personal that they obviously could pass for real money, which is awesome. Yeah, but they, it did. You know, obviously it did, uh, yeah. He spent them, exactly. They did use them. Not many movies cover this subject matter, and that's what I was always intrigued by. And it's a movie that shows the darker side of law enforcement, really. shows <laughs> the darker side of life. They'll break a million laws to bust one guy. I enjoyed as a film watcher, film viewer, film lover, but the ethical questions, they went against any and everything that they should. They crossed every line. And yeah. the movie also feels like it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy in the way that Chance loses his partner. And then he loses his own life. So then Vukovic is the new guy in charge. And it's just going to keep yeah. going to the next guy. You know, Vukovic will probably have a new partner. He'll show him the ropes and then maybe he'll be off. And it's just kind of continues to happen. Well, that's kind of like life, you know, life totally. goes on. Yeah. You know, and when Pankow went, you know, got into his outfit, his jacket and his shirt and his car and all that. And then he wanted his girlfriend, too, Yep. at the end. So life goes on. Yeah. 
I did like that. I like the way he stepped up from the nervous guy to being the guy. And yeah, now she's his informant. And what just, it stayed with me. And that's the beauty of great filmmaking. You can hold it up 20, 30, 40 years later. It still works. I have told so many people about it that had never seen it. And then they go and watch it and they're riveted. Like, I had no idea this movie was out there. And I think, because it wasn't (laughs) as big of a hit as it probably should have been, in my opinion, but it's a little treasure that definitely holds up because obviously yourself and Freakin' and the cast and crew, and it's just a great film, soundtrack, the whole bit from head to toe. So congratulations and thank you for putting that in the film archives for us, if you will. And if you don't mind, I'd love to pivot to this other movie that I cover on a different podcast. It's a podcast called Let's Talk Cobra Kai that is everything Karate Kid and the new show Cobra Kai related. And of course, that is the Karate Kid, which you were editor and associate producer on. That's insane. I cannot believe this, bud. How did that come about? How did you get a job working with John G. Abelson? Uh, rest in peace. I actually worked with the producer, Jerry Weintraub. Oh, yes. Jerry Weintraub and I, we hit it off, and I, I did what I did with him, and it was just a, a marriage made in heaven until he went off and died. Yeah. You know, he went to Santa Barbara with his girlfriend, and didn't, he didn't come back. He just died in a hotel. Mm. And he was a young guy, too. He wasn't old. Just wasn't his week. Right. I read his autobiography several years ago. Loved it. Then the HBO did a whole special on his story. So I became a huge fan the way he worked with Elvis and then Frank Sinatra. And he was just this producer's producer. And he made movies like Ocean's Eleven. And of course... He had a lot to do with The Karate Kid, which launched a huge franchise. But So you knew him. You got to work on this film. But I'm telling you, did you know, again, maybe not, like The Exorcist or To Live and Die in L.A., but did you know how special this project was at the time? Well, no, I did not. I didn't have a clue. I didn't have a clue what Karate Kid was other than this little boy trying to be a karate kid. Be a karate, you know, he was in school and he'd been pissed on. Yep. And he finally got into Miyagi, was a the karate teacher. He taught him how to do karate and he went and, and won a karate championship. Yeah. So But it wasn't quite that easy. (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine. So please tell me. I mean, yeah, what was it? What was that journey? The thing is, when a writer writes stuff, they don't realize you have to put it on film. I guess they do realize that that was like a surprise that we put this fucking thing together and it worked. Right. So... As your role as an associate producer on The Karate Kid, what were you doing exactly in that role? Besides the editor, we'll get to the editor in a minute, but the associate producer in you, what was your job? Well, I had a thing where I wanted to see if I could elevate myself into production instead of just being a film editor. Okay. So I wanted to be like an associate producer or something that would elevate me and Jerry Weintraub and I were great friends, and he made me whatever, whatever I wanted, and that was it. So. Okay, okay. So the relationship, and you got a producer credit, but really, yeah. you were an editor on this film, and I'm assuming that you had to really find this movie in the edit, because... I mean, it's a simple story. Yes, bullied kid learns karate wins tournament. But you and I both know it's much more magical than that. I mean, you had a great team. You had the director, John G. Avildsen, who did Rocky. And it really has some tie-ins to Rocky in it, of course, some themes, if you will. Yeah, we had a composer. Yes, you had Bill Conti. Exactly. Yeah. And Ralph Macchio was coming off some great movies, one of which was The Outsiders, which was filmed in our hometown of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Yeah. And he had the chops. He's a great actor. And Miyagi, played by Pat Morita, would go on to be nominated for an Oscar in his incredible role 
of Mr. Miyagi. So there was a lot of good things at play here. And there was other editors, right? If I'm not mistaken, were you the lead editor or? Essentially, I had one other person working with me. Okay. Besides my assistants, and I had two or three assistants. Anyway, we had enough people to do the job. But when you were in there editing and finding the solution to the fly and the chopsticks and all these funny little things and moments and Conti score, what was that editing like, that whole process, finding the movie? Well, you know, the thing is, John Allison shoots a lot of films. So you have to go through his dailies on a daily basis <laughs> and see where the best parts are. And you try to go for the best parts of every scene. That's with not only John Allison, but every other director I've worked with. And one kind of famous director is Robert Downey Sr. I did five years with him. That was always trying to find the story and find a piece that fits together. Speaking of Robert Downey Sr., he was also into Live and Die in L.A., which was nice. Yeah, he was. <laughs> yeah, he was. Uh, because of me, <laughs> I, I, I am saying that he was the, the police captain. Yep. And uh, <laughs> he was great in that role. Yeah, it was just kind of a throwaway scene. But no, he looked great. Okay, pivoting back to The Karate Kid. So you're editing the movie, you have all this abundance of footage, courtesy of Avildsen, and you start to pull out the right takes of each scene, and you start putting it together. And of course, with Conti's score, I'm sure it starts to come to life. And there are beautiful moments in this movie, but it had to be exciting to find this story in there. Yeah, what was that like? I think that I read that Avildsen was also an editor. He took an editing credit, so he must have well, been he, right there. Yeah, he likes to think he's an editor, <laughs> but he, he's really, you know, a sloppy kind of an assistant editor. But he would put shots together, and they were so okay. You know, but I wouldn't call him an editor. Okay, fair enough. Well, I'm not. I just saw the credits. But now this is why I'm I'm talking to the man that can set the uh, story straight. But so anyway, you're starting to put the story together. And I mean, you already told me you had no idea it would have this sort of life. But for it to become the hit that it did, bud, obviously it has to be exciting to be part of a hit. It's obviously something that's happened in your career more than a few times. But this movie, I mean, it still works today. This many years later, because this movie came out in 85, as did To Live and Die in L.A. And in fact, it spawned several sequels, and it's launched this TV show in 2018 that I don't know if you've paid attention, but Cobra Kai, after going on Netflix in August, was the number one show on Netflix for several months. So it all started with The Karate Kid, because the show brings back Ralph Macchio, William Zabka, Martin Cove, and they're continuing the characters on 35 years later. And I'm telling you, it is really well done, well-crafted. So not very often do you see a show revisit something and hitting the same notes. And season three comes out in January, and it has become a crown jewel of Netflix. So you might want to take a look at it. Yeah, what is it called? Cobra Kai. Cobra Kai. Yeah, they took on the the moniker from the movie, of course, the Cobra Kai Dojo, and it starts to tell that story. You you see a different side to Johnny, Johnny Lawrence, played by William Zabka. Uh-huh. You get to understand his side more. You see a mature Daniel LaRusso. Obviously, we have no Mr. Miyagi because Pat Morita passed away. But it's beautifully done, well-crafted. It's a younger generation of Miyagi-Do and Cobra Kai students and mixed with the adult versions of the Russo and Lawrence. And, of course, Martin Cove is amazing as usual. He was a great villain as I was growing up, and you just hated him. You feared the Cobra Kai dojo. And, I mean, it works today, obviously, as I just pointed out because of the show. But... You know, what else I noticed from that movie when it came out, it had a huge impact on probably martial arts across the country in a positive yeah. way. It probably made karate dojos open up all over the country. Yeah, well, that's what it was supposed to do. <laughs> that's exactly right. You know, the thing is, Jerry Weinstein was the guy that I was with prior, I think, and 
Anyway, he and I have a relationship, and, and that's why I just write his. I always wanted to meet him, and unfortunately I didn't, but it's really amazing to hear that you guys had this bond and friendship, and that's really special. If he wasn't a big producer, he'd be one of the boys. Right. You know, that's the way he was. He, he loved to come to the editing room and watch me work. That was one of his daily treats. Yeah. So... Well, I, everything I read about him, he was just a larger-than-life character, and anything he touched turned to gold. It's amazing. That's right, yeah. Yeah, everything he did was... Uh, when I read the script before I was here, I thought, what a piece of shit this is. <laughs> <laughs> but between the producer and the cast and the, and the directing, it turned out, and the score, the music yeah. score, it all it all was together. Yeah. So and I remember when I remember when we went to preview it, we went to uh Jennifer Colorado to preview it in some little movie theater. And the theater was full of kids. And when we after the it was all over, they were screaming and yelling and clapping and you know, I was out in the lobby waiting for people they came streaming out of the theater, just fucking full of life. I mean, they thought it was the greatest thing ever. So at that point, Jerry knew he had a hit on his hands. And he proceeded on to turn it into a multi-multi-million dollar film. And that was a happy, happy Jerry Weintraub. I got to tell you, I was one of those kids. I was 14 when the movie came out. And had I been in that screening, I too would have lost my mind. I saw <laughs> I saw it in Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, right after it came out. And it was a game changer for me. I was the right age. It hit me very deeply. And when you're young and you see that, and you're very impressionable and you see a movie that way, that is about young people dealing with problems and overcoming them and you know, yeah. being bullied and rising above the situation. Yeah, it's triumphant. It's something I'll never forget. And the movie has real magic to it. Yeah, right. It meant a lot to you at that time. Yes, it did. Yes, it did. And back to Weintraub, I read that he was in production on the sequel 10 days after the original movie was released. So yes, he was very aware that he had himself a hit, a hit franchise, and he was exploiting yeah. it for sure. Yeah, well, he... He wanted me to stay with him. I was off doing something with Billy Treats in it then, and I had no desire to go on with another Hawaii's head. Right. So, so that was uh, my problem because I probably could own part of it. Well, just to pivot really quickly, not as in-depth. Those are the two movies I really wanted to get in-depth, and thank you, bud, for your time on those. I just wanted to hit a couple other movies that were big to me, and obviously I just want to hear just a little bit about, but you edited Some Kind of Wonderful, directed by Howard yeah. Deutsch and written by John Hughes. Yeah. That was a great film as well, coming-of-age movie, Eric Stoltz. And so what was that experience like? Well, the thing with Howard Deutsch, was not what I would consider a great director, but we were on the set. We were actually on the studio lot where he was shooting. So every day, at the end of the day, we were spending the dailies, and you know, he would shoot so fucking much film that people would go to sleep in the screening room. Oh, my God. Just 50 days or something. So that was Howie Judge. He was not what I call one of my favorite directors. So your memory of Some Kind of Wonderful was a ton of film to go through. Some Kind of Wonderful was just a film of youth that kind of came out of a high school. Yeah. Basically. So. Well, it had that John Hughes magic about it. I did like it. He wrote it. Obviously, he didn't direct it, as we've talked about. But yeah. it's still enjoyable. It still holds up. It really captures that era in the 80s, which John Hughes' written movies did. 
And great soundtrack, again, had a lot of young bands. And it, obviously, it's made for a younger audience, this movie was. But I always yeah. enjoyed it. But then this led to the next year. It's the only directing credit I saw for you, but it was Johnny B. Good in 1988. <laughs> I saw this yeah. movie in the theater, bud. Johnny B. Good? Yes, indeed. Well. It had Anthony Michael Hall, Uma Thurman, Robert Downey Jr. What was yeah. that like, directing this movie? Well, as soon as I had worked with Robert Downey uh, Sr. back on the Putney Slope, you know, way back, yeah. way back when, and Junior was just a little boy at that time, and he was in one of the films that his dad directed called Pound. It was about dogs and a pound, and people with the dogs, they would... You know, the, you make a cut, and then all the dogs turned into people, and vice wow. versa. So that was Robert Downey Jr.'s very first film. So if you have a chance to dig up an old yeah. uh, videotape or something of it, take a look. and uh, <laughs> It still kind of holds up. But being a director on this film, did you enjoy that role? I mean, you had always been around these other directors. You had been an editor, associate producer, lots of different things, but this is the first time I'm assuming that you were you were helming the whole thing. Did you enjoy the the job? Was it a fun, enjoyable experience, or was it just a nightmare? It really was, because the thing is, I, had, I got to scout locations, and I had worked with Orion Pictures before. Mm-hmm. And uh, they let me kind of have do whatever I wanted. And so I, I went on location scouting for about a month. And I liked uh, Texas as my background for these young kids. I went to San Antonio, and that was my base yeah. where I shot the, the main film. And that was all good. I mean, it was all good for me. You know, when we started putting it all together, I realized that we didn't have a great film. We just had an okay film. Yeah. And but we just kept on, kept on it like uh, we were going to try to make it work. Yeah. And we previewed it, and I didn't have a lot of different scenes I cut out. I just pretty much had the same material. Right. And uh, I had to shoot it in a certain length of time with a certain amount of money. And it was okay. I mean, I I got to do it. So Yeah. Well, I was such a fan of Hall and Daddy Jr. And they had teamed yeah. up prior in Weird Science. And then both of them went on to be on Saturday Night Live. And Hall was like yeah. the youngest cast member on that show at the time. And I remember wanting to love it, and I remember just liking it. You know, I thought, oh, it's enjoyable. I like them, and they're fun. But you're right. It didn't have the staying power. The stakes weren't as high. But it was a lot of these kind of movies, a fun little uh, comedy in the 80s. And that had to be a lot of fun to do. And then, obviously, you went on to do several more. And I'm just going to mention one more because there's a tie-in here. But it was... Dark Man, 1990, the Sam Raimi film. <laughs> yeah, where you editor, supervising editor. And of course, the lead, Dark Man, was Larry Drake, born and raised in Tulsa, Oklahoma. <laughs> and he spoke, but I swear to you, at my high school graduation, he did the commencement speech. Larry Drake. Rest in peace. We lost him too early, unfortunately. But yeah. that movie was kind of a big deal. And Sam Raimi went on to become a very prolific director. Any good takeaways, thoughts on Dark Man? Not really. You know, the thing is, I wasn't on the film to start. I was on vacation. Okay. I was up in uh, Monterey just doing nothing, hanging out. <laughs> and I had this call from my agent saying that Sam Raimi wanted me to come and look at his film called Dark Man. And so I went back to L.A., drove back, and I screened the film on, I think it was a Tuesday, and it was just a piece of shit, <laughs> in my opinion. So I wasn't working, so I said, okay, I'll, I'll take this on. And I did, and I worked on it for months or whatever. 
and got it in the shape to preview it, and we previewed it, and it went over really well. And yeah. The studio was extremely happy with the cuts that I did. That was kind of a good thing for me, and it was a good thing for Sam Raimi, who went on and finished the film. I don't know what he's done since then, but nothing to my knowledge. So after Darkman, he did a great film called Army of Darkness, which I really enjoyed. A Simple Plan came out in 98. So Army of Darkness was 92. A Simple Plan is a great movie. Then he did Spider-Man. Spider-Man uh, 2, Spider-Man 3, then Drag Me to Hell. That's right, yeah, yeah. So he became a pretty big director, and it all probably started or hinged on the success of Darkman, which was a hit. And I remember seeing it in the theater and enjoying it. So... Bud, you probably saved the day because that first cut of Dark Man would have probably tanked at the box office. Yeah. Well, that was my Sam Raimi experience. That's great. You know, I just realized I have to bring up one last movie. I skipped it at the top because we were talking Friedkin. And if I'd be sad if I didn't at least mention it because it is an iconic movie. And that is Flashdance, which came out in 1983. <laughs> I can't Flash you won Flashdance. Flash you won a BAFTA and you were nominated for an Oscar. So that's two nominations, Exorcist and Flashdance. Yeah. So what was that like? Were you on set with Flashdance or were you just Well, I you know, it was Jerry Brockheimer oh. was the guy that I had worked with prior. And he called me I was in New York doing something with Robert County. And he came into New York and he wanted to have a meeting with me and the director. And so I went to the hotel where they were and I met the director and Jerry and it was just like a high hour. I have no idea what to say and I didn't know what to talk to the director about. And but Jerry and I had worked together. Yeah. And so he trusted me to do what what I needed to do. And so I signed on, and they went to Pittsburgh to shoot. And I was in New York, and I asked the dailies in New York. And I was freedom, and I said, this is shit. You know, you got to reshoot this. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and, and, and I was being as honest as I could because it was... The girl that was supposed to be this wonderful dancer, they had her all covered up with a top coat that you couldn't even see her. And I didn't realize that she had a big ass and, and the legs went right. And, uh, but anyway, that was the start of Flash Dance. It ended up pretty damn good, though. It sure did. Yeah, Jennifer Bills, her coming out role. It's one scene, of course, the maniac dance number. So you're the editor. Yeah. What was that like putting this iconic scene together? Did you know you had magic in the bottle? Well, you know, the thing is, by being an editor, you get to see film in a different way. When she, maniac was done in her loft, in her house. It was a started off on a shot of her foot, you know, wrapping her feet and her tapping. And then we got into to the full body, and you had to be very careful because the stunt double, the dance double, was really great. And Jennifer, it was only when she shook her head and you would see her hair flap back and forth. That was about all of Jennifer. And the dance double did the whole fucking thing. <laughs> so that was flashing. Yeah. We also had that What a Feeling song in the movie, also a huge song. But a lot of music, a lot of dancing, a lot of choreography. But yeah, it worked and it's held up for <laughs> this many years later. So <laughs> oh, good. I can't help, Bud, but think that you had something huge to do with these movies. Beyond these great directors and actors and crew, you played a role in these movies' success, without a doubt. Yeah, well, I think so, too. Good job. Uh, <laughs> not to toot my own horn, it's just I was brought up doing documentaries and then progressed on into features. And the documentaries were great education 
of what you can do with film if you have no script, no nothing, just a bunch of footage. Exactly. And that was my background. So as far as directors you worked with, I didn't get into Cat People, but you worked with Paul Schrader. And of course, we talked about Appleton and you were great friends with Friedkin. And so who was the most interesting director you worked with or the toughest director to work with? Well, I think Billy Friedkin was, he was the most imaginative director. He would take a scene and, you know, you could maybe read it and you wouldn't get anything out of it. But the way he shot it, you get a lot out of it. Wow. Especially when you're in Mexico or in uh, this little social town. There's a lot of just shots. And uh, he was just great to work with. Probably because I was with him in documentaries. Yeah. And we went off, and five years later, we hooked up, and I had a 20-year run with him. Wow. So that was... uh, Do you guys still talk today? Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't talk to him now because he's too fucking old. (laughs) He's still working. He's still working. (laughs) Well... We're still both alive, so that's about all I can say. Absolutely, absolutely. So, but how do you spend your days? Are you watching anything interesting on TV no, or movies? No, or? I'm kind of a fish out of water, so to speak, because I had cancer in my throat and I had operations, and I don't know whether you can hear if I talk. They had to cut my tongue. Oh in half and my jaw has all been replaced and I've just been an old film editor. Wow. Well, congrats on beating cancer. When did that all happen? Almost four years ago, three years ago for sure. Wow. And, you know, when this all hit me, I had no idea what I was in for. I guess I was lucky with working with Billy Friedson he put me in touch with UCLA, oh. and UCLA had the best surgeons, I guess you call them. Yeah. And when they got me in UCLA, they maybe just fucking tore me apart mm. and patched me up. Man. So I, I'm still alive because of that. But that was Billy Friedson that got me to UCLA. Wow. Is there pain? Or do you not have pain? Oh, no. No pain. That's good. I just can't talk very good. And I can't eat very good because, oh. you know, I don't have the control of my jaw. Right. And so I can't chew. So it's, uh, I kind of am a soup baby now. Yeah, soup or shakes or... Yeah. 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 Okay. You have a great fighting spirit. You sound great. How young are you, if I may ask? I'm 83. 83. Wow. <laughs> 83. That's awesome, man. That's awesome. Well, I was, yeah, I was born in 1935, so it's been a long time. I've done a lot in my life. You sure have. You, you may not have become a pro race car driver, but we're all better <laughs> for the career that you did choose. Thank you. Yeah, I want to thank, thank you. you for everything you've done. And not to mention, you've given me more than an hour of your time. And it was a real pleasure, really. My pleasure, pal. Thank you. Hey, thank you, man. Take care. All right. Bye. So thank you so much for listening. And please be sure to subscribe to the Let's Talk Movies podcast, as well as the Let's Talk Movies YouTube live channel. You can also really help us by giving the show a five-star rating on Apple Podcast. And for all you listeners that enjoy sharing your thoughts, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcast. Send us a direct message or post a comment on any Let's Talk Movies social media platform. We also highly recommend checking out our other podcast and visiting JustCuriousMedia.com.